take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you about uh, a guy that you may know about a little bit. Uh, his name's Jeff Bannister. He's the head coach of the Texas Rangers. And he has a pretty interesting uh, backstory. When he was a uh, sophomore in high school, he injured his right ankle playing baseball. And that, that ankle injury, as they began to uh, x-ray it, they saw that something was wrong with it. It revealed that uh, he had bone cancer. And he developed cysts that required skin grafts to treat. And then an infection occurred in his leg and it led to the development of osteomyelitis and it spread from his right ankle all the way up to below his knee. And this was a life and death situation for him even just as a sophomore in high school. Doctor, doctors rep, recommended amputation in order to save the rest of his leg but he refused. You see, he loved to play baseball, and he wanted to play in the major leagues one day. And so eventually, over that period of time, doctors performed seven operations on his leg, and they saved it from being amputated. After high school, Jeff Bannister played catcher in a junior college, and uh, there was this one game that he was not scheduled to play, but a scout from the New York Yankees was there specifically to see him play. And so the manager switched the lineup at the last minute, put him in the game. And uh, during that particular game, a uh, base runner was coming toward home, and he's the catcher, and the base runner tried to jump over him, but ended up hitting him in the head with his knee. And the collision broke three vertebrae in Jeff Bannister's neck. As a result of that collision, he was paralyzed from the neck down for 10 days. Doctors told him that he might never walk again. And he had another three operations performed on his back and his neck. But he exceeded the doctor's expectations and he learned how to walk again. All that time that he was in the hospital, he went from a weight of 225 pounds. Well, he lost 86 pounds uh, during that time. He was down to about 239 or so. And by the time he was discharged... Um, he was told again that he would never play baseball, but eventually he regained his strength and began playing once again. He was finally drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates, a Major League Baseball team, and he was the 621st player drafted in that draft, and in the 25th round. He spent his entire career in the minor leagues with the goal of making it to the major leagues. And he finally made it one day in the major leagues. On July 23rd, 1991, an injury to the Pittsburgh Pirates catcher created an opportunity for Jeff Bannister to be called up to the major leagues. And the manager in the eighth inning put him in as a pinch hitter for the pitcher. And pitchers usually aren't very good batters. And he borrowed a teammate's bat. He didn't have a bat of his own. And in that at-bat... He hit a slow ground ball to the infield, but he beat it out as he ran toward first base. It was the only time he would ever have an at-bat in the major leagues, and he got a hit. Jeff Bannister, I tell you this story, that he overcame bone cancer and infection in his bones. He overcame three broken vertebrae, vertebrae in his back. He spent eight years playing minor league ball with only one 
small appearance in the major leagues. And the question I want to ask is, how was he able to keep going? With all of those obstacles, all of those problems, everything that he had to overcome, the reason that he was able to overcome all of that was because he had a motto that he's held to all of this time, and it's never, ever quit. Never, ever quit. What kept him going, what helped him overcome all of the medical problems and the problems with his career was up here in his mind. He had a perspective. He had a vision. He had an understanding in his mind. And that is where he had already won the battle. Today I want to talk to you about winning the battle of the mind. As Christians, God calls us to live above the sin that can hinder us and enslave us. And that battle begins in the mind. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, we read this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's stop right there because your mind is the battlefield. That is where the victories of every day are going to be won or going to be lost. You cannot control the things that are outside of your life that happen to you. You cannot control when someone crashes their car into your car. That's out of your control. You cannot control when uh, some disease comes upon you. You cannot control when a tragedy happens to someone that you love. All of these things are circumstances beyond your control. But what you can control is what happens in your mind. The battle, the battleground really, is in the mind. Verse 13, we're going to look at this very carefully. Verse 13 begins with the word, therefore. And when you see the word, therefore, in the Bible, you need to see what it's there for. It's always there for a reason. And the word, therefore, tells us, that there's something that this is built upon. There's some foundation. There's some truth that is there that what follows is built upon. And verse 13 continues. It says, prepare your minds for action. Here's what the therefore is there for. And I'll tell you in verse 3, you go back and you read that at near the beginning of the chapter. Verse 3 tells us a very simple statement that you're born again. You're born again. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. If you're born again, then you prepare your minds for action. Verse 4 tells us that you're going to gain an imperishable body when Jesus returns. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Verse 5 says that you're protected by God's power. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Verse 6 says, and verse 7 as well says that your sufferings Prove and purify your faith in Christ. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Verse 8 tells us that we can experience the love and the joy of Jesus Christ here in this life. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. 
Verse 9 says that you have already obtained the salvation of your soul. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And verses 10 through 12 tells us, as we learned last week, that the mystery of a Messiah who would bring salvation to the world by suffering, that mystery has been solved and it's been revealed to you. We know how Jesus did that through his death and resurrection. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. In fact, the, the, that phrase, prepare your minds for action, literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. We don't talk like that anymore. Uh, but that's literally what it says. Now, what does that mean to gird up your loins? Well, back in that day, there are a couple of different ways to do this, but back in that day, uh, people would typically wear robes. Sometimes they were very long robes. And if there was something that you had to really do, if you, there was some place you had to go quickly, if you had to run or if you had to fight, having a long robe wrapped around the bottom of your feet would not be very helpful if you needed to get around. And so the easiest way to gird your loins for action would simply be to bend down and take the back part of the robe that's behind you through your legs, tuck it up, and into your belt. And you've sort of created pants that way. Uh, there was another way that was even better. It took a little bit more time. But basically, you would uh, hike up your robe until you had a whole bunch of uh, extra cloth here. And you'd hold it in front of you, and you'd wrap it behind you, and then take the rest of it, wrap it around, and tie it in a knot. And then you've it looks like you're wearing a big diaper if you do that. But you're really ready to run or do whatever you have to do. And so in the Old Testament, if you go back and you read the Old Testament about that, that uh, story where God told Israel to prepare the Passover meal, we remember that. And you might even remember that they were supposed to be ready to go. They were supposed to have this Passover meal, put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, but be ready to go. Be ready quickly. Specifically, God said to have that Passover meal with their loins girded. Don't even wait so long as to have to pick up your robe and tuck it into your belt. Have that already done. Why? Because having your loins girded means that you're ready for action. The Bible talks about, in many different passages of Scripture, why your mind is so important to winning the battles of the day. In Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self. Romans 8, 6 says that the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the spirit is life and death. And so getting your mind prepared for the battle of each day means that you have to be spiritually alert. That means every day you need to have an attitude that says, God, I'm ready to see you work. My mind is set. My mind is ready to respond to you, whatever you would have me do. I'm going to obey you, and I'm ready to see you work. So you're ready to respond to God with instant obedience. It's not that the Holy Spirit 
would prompt you to do something and uh, then you're at the point where you say, well, let me think about it. I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm ready to pay that price. No, you've already made up your mind. You've prepared your mind for action. You've already made up your mind that whatever God tells me to do today, I'm simply going to obey and I'm going to agree. So how do you renew your mind? How do you get your mind that kind of focused? You do it by reading and by meditating and by memorizing the Word of God. In Psalm 119, in verse 25, we have an an incredible passage here. I'm going to read about eight verses. It says, My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have told of my ways, but you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not let me, or do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. You have to have a life that is centered in God's Word. You're going to have to read the Word of God. You're going to have to pick up your Bible or pick up your Bible app or however you would like to read God's Word. You're going to have to make it a daily habit of reading the Word of God if you're going to have a mind prepared to obey God. Otherwise, all of the messages of this world, the internet and the media and your friends and your family and your co-workers and all the noise that's in this world will somehow push your mind, cause it to drift to a state where you're not ready for action. God says prepare your minds for action. And you do it by keeping your mind keeping your life centered in the Word of God. Jesus said that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. Everyone who hungers for righteousness, God, I want to do the right thing. I thirst to be righteous. Jesus says if that's your desire, you will be filled. Verse 13 in 1 Peter chapter 1 continues. It says, keep sober in spirit. What's that mean, keep sober in spirit? Well, I think it means that two things are absolutely forbidden. Number one is drunkenness. For a Christian, you cannot be someone who gets drunk. I know there's an increasing number of Christians in our society who drink alcohol, or maybe they're just more open about it these days than they were before, I don't know. There's even an increasing number of pastors who advocate moderate alcohol consumption. And I've made my own position clear that abstinence from alcohol is the best policy. And there's no two ways about that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, chasing this issue but because I've preached about this before, but I will ask this one question. Why would anyone who says that they are a Christian want to play around with something that diminishes their mind? which is the daily battlefield of their soul. We know the effect of alcohol. 
We know the effect that it has on our mind, on our conscience, on, our, um, on the things that would inhibit us with, from within. Why would anyone want to mess with that and diminish our mind? It's like giving ammunition to the enemy. It's, like, it's putting yourself in a poor position to win the spiritual battles of the day. And so drunkenness, I believe, would be absolutely forbidden. You can't be drunk and be sober in spirit. It makes no sense. The other thing that would, that would likewise be forbidden is having a devotion to idols, being mentally intoxicated by the things of this world. An idol is usually not a little statue that you'd keep up on a window shelf or, or something like that. It could be, I suppose. It, but it, for most of us, it's usually not a little statue that you bow down and you worship. But it could be anything that you devote yourself to that inhibits your spiritual preparedness. It could even be good things, things that are not necessarily evil of themselves, but it takes you adrift from that which is best from God. And you can become mentally intoxicated not only by alcohol and other drugs, but even by other things that are otherwise good. You can become intoxicated by your career, so devoted to becoming the very best at your career that you leave your uh, obligations to your family and you let them suffer. You can become so devoted to your career that you never again enter into a church building and worship with other believers. You can be so devoted to your career that it has an effect on the raising of your own kids. And so you need to be not mentally intoxicated by your career, which obviously is a good thing. God gives us careers. He calls us to serve Him through our careers. Same thing can be said of possessions. You become so mentally intoxicated by wanting this possession or that possession that that becomes your sole focus in life. That's not good. You can't be spiritually sober if you're intoxicated by your possessions or by recreation or by your reputation or even by friendships. God gives us all of these things. All of these things are good things. But that we can become so askew in our minds and, and mentally intoxicated that these things become our sole devotion in life instead of a, simply a blessing that God has given us. God should be our focus, not his blessings. There's a key difference there. And so be spiritually sober, keep sober in spirit. Verse 13 continues, it says, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Fix your hope means think about the grace that is going to be given to you when Jesus returns. What does that mean exactly? Put your mind on what it will be like when Jesus returns. Don't forget that there's coming a day when Jesus is going to crack open the sky and he's going to come to this earth. He's going to return. He's going to be king over this earth. And he's going to rule this earth. You see, if you're thinking about what it's going to be like when Jesus returns, you won't be thinking about your sin. And so put your focus on that day when he returns, that promise that he's made, that he's coming back. So living above your sin begins in your mind. We can't overestimate 
or overemphasize how important that is. Living above your sin means that you quit feeding your dark side as well. You know, every one of us has a dark side. There's a dark part of our heart. It's that part of us that when we're in our right mind, we don't like that part of us. It's the ugly part of us. It's the part of us that uh, turns a, a nice person into a bear of a person. It's the part of us that can take over our lives and can uh, take us down the wrong path. It's the part of us that gets us into trouble. The dark side is really a three-headed monster of pride, coveting, and desiring what feels good. And so we all have a dark side, and we have to be careful about it. Verse 14 tells us this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Don't be conformed to that way of life, because God has changed you through Christ. You're a new person now. You know, if, if you're a parent, you don't let your child get away with disobedience for very long. I mean, they may sneak something past you. You may look the other way at something else. But it doesn't take real long before you have to uh, nip that in the bud. And you have to correct that behavior. Why? Why don't you let it go for long? Because you care. You care about your child. And you don't want your child to turn out to be a person of bad character. God doesn't let us get away with disobedience for long either. That's why in verse 14 he calls us obedient children. And so if you're a child of God, if God is your father through Christ, then you should obey him. Let me put it this way. If the desires of your heart cause you to disobey God, then you need new desires. You need to exchange those desires for something different. You need to find new desires. How do you do it? By pursuing God and his word. Verse 14 talks about not being conformed to the former lusts. To be conformed to something means that you pattern your life after something. And so don't, don't pattern your life after the things that drag you down spiritually. Don't pattern the, your life after people that drag you down spiritually. In Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, we read, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God don't do those things you've left those things behind yes they might be tempting yes they might creep up in your life and, and attack you from, from outside yes they might be leftover residue from a heart that is, is supposed to be devoted to Christ but identify them as your enemy and don't do those things. Don't conform your life to those things. Leave those things behind and exchange them for what God has called you to. Living above your sin also means that you set yourself apart for God every day. Every day, not only does the battle begin in your mind, not only does the battle mean that you do not pursue or let the dark side of your heart uh, overcome you but it means that you devote every single day to being set apart for God 
God, this day is a day that I'm setting apart for you. By the way, that doesn't have to be a Sunday. It can be every single day. This day, as I go to work, this day, as I spend time with my family, this day, as I go about my hobbies and the things that I'd like to do in this life, I'm going to do them for you. Verses 15 and 16, put it this way. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What it means to be holy means to be different. It means to be other. It means to be unlike the rest of this world. And you are called to be different because the God who called you is different. The God who called you is holy. You see, God, as we know, initiated our salvation. And he brought it to pass. And he will fulfill the very end of it. God is every part of our salvation. And he has called you to live with him. He has called you to be like him. Verse 15 says, You are to be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. You know, according to the Bible, something is holy when it is separated from sin and when it is devoted to seeking God's honor. And so for you to be holy, what that means is that you set yourself apart from evil. You say, God, today, I am not going to follow the temptations that might come my way, but I'm going to separate myself from those temptations. I'm going to separate myself from evil things and even from ordinary things, but I'm going to devote myself this day to your glory. And to be holy in all of your behavior means that you develop a pattern of life that transforms every day and every moment and every thought and every action into something that glorifies God. Now, why would anyone want to go to all the trouble of having to be holy? Isn't it just easier just to be a normal person, engaging in normal activities, just like everybody else? Why would anyone want to be holy? Verse 16 says, It is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You know, when the Bible says it is written, it means that it is written in the Scriptures, and it remains very valid today. It is written. Not that it was written. Not that somebody long ago said, you ought to be holy. It's not that Moses said a long time ago, you ought to be holy. It's not that Abraham or King David or Solomon or Paul or Peter even said that you ought to be holy. God has put it in his eternal word and it's not that it was written a long time ago but it is written today it is written it is a command that stays in effect when scripture says it is written it is not only quoting itself but it's saying that this is a command that has not gone away it remains in effect today Why is Scripture the only authority for our church? Because we hold to the same view of Scripture that Jesus had. When you think about the authorities that you might be tempted to follow, what authorities did Jesus follow? He did not consider traditions to be 
the authority over his life. In fact, he criticized those who placed these traditions above the word of God. In Mark 7, 8, Jesus said, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Traditions are not the authority. Not according to Jesus. For Jesus, Scripture was the authority. He said in Matthew 5, 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest stroke, not the smallest letter or stroke, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. God's Word, the Holy Scriptures, these 66 books, remain the authority that God has given us because they come directly from His Word. It is written that you shall be holy. This is what the Scriptures say. God Himself is the most holy one. There's only one characteristic of God that is ever mentioned in the triplicate. There's only one description or characteristic of God that is repeated three times. It is not the wrath of God. Nowhere in Scripture does the Bible say that God is wrath, wrath, wrath. It is not even the love of God. We know God's Word says that He is love. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that God is love, love, love. Not three times in a row. But in Isaiah chapter 6, also in the book of Revelation, it says that God is holy, holy, holy. The emphasis is that this is the key characteristic of understanding God, that He is so unlike you and me. He is so unlike the sinful world. He's separate. He's other. His purity is so much greater than we can ever comprehend. He is holy. He's holier. He's holiest. God is holy. He is the most holy one, Scripture says. The holy nature of God is the basis of God's requirement for you to be holy. The ultimate ground for our moral behavior rests in the very nature of God. If people were to say to you, well, why, why are you such a goody-two-shoes? Why, why do you try to do the right thing all the time? You make everybody look bad. You blow the curve, you know that? You, you really have a really high standard, and I respect that, but I don't understand why you want to live such a, such a life of righteousness and holiness What's the reason for that? Well, your answer is simply one, one simple truth. Because God is holy. God is holy. He wants me to be holy. Why are some things right? Why are some things wrong? Why are there moral absolutes in this universe? It's because of God's nature. God is holy. That's why some things are always right. Some things are always wrong. You see, God delights in the things that reflect His character. And He wants that of you. He wants you and me to reflect His character. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it with the sin that's in your life. But by the grace and the power of God through Christ, 
God says you can. You can be holy. You have to give your life and your heart to Christ. And you have to be a person who devotes himself to following his way every single day.